I'd like you to imagine today that you live on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea in the time of Christ, a long time ago, before there's anything that can be wired or sent electronically or anything like that. We go way back in time, and you are a single adult and you're wealthy. You hear that there is a merchant ship that's headed for Spain in six weeks and you decide that that would be good for business and leisure and whatever plans you have and so you book passage on this ship to Spain. But that night you are visited by an angel who delivers a message from God. Here's the message. Your ship will sink. You will survive and be taken to Spain But every possession that you bring on board will be lost at sea. And you will never return to Crete again. So you're going to make it. You'll get there. But you'll come out with nothing but yourself. And you'll never be back here again. You must not attempt to reverse your fate. You must not attempt to warn anyone else. In fact, if you do, immediately you will forget this message in its entirety and lose all opportunity to prepare. Now, setting aside all other matters of concern, how would you respond financially? You're going to have a lot of things to think about here, right? But how would you respond financially? Would you say, I'm going to spend all my money here in Crete since I cannot take it with me? It wouldn't be very wise wouldn't seem, but maybe somebody might think along those lines. Or would you say, I'm going to give all my money away here in Crete and I want to arrive in Spain destitute? Or would you say, I'm going to send all of my money ahead to Spain, taking on ship no food, no change of clothing, nothing to read, no bedding, not a single earthy luxury, since nothing's going to survive the wreck? Now, I suspect we would think differently. I suspect you would want to bring some things along for the lengthy journey. Just not anything that you are unwilling to surrender to the sea. You might spend some money in your last days in Crete, and you may give some money away to people there in need, but giving all of your money away would eliminate any possibility of so blessing others and living independently when you reach Spain. Whatever your plan, however you devised it, you would obviously have some work to do. You would need to think shrewdly. You'd need to work through the plan and seek to take this money that you do have with you in some way, but not on your person. Realizing you had an opportunity to send money on ahead, but could bring none of it with you, would not only influence your thinking, it would order your goals and your actions for the next six weeks. It would really reorder the way that you thought about everything. Now, as we continue to consider in this brief series the wisdom of Jesus on material wealth, He, in some sense, counsels us that that's your reality. This is how you should look at life. This is how you should look at your financial resources, at your material wealth. Death is a shipwreck that will force each of us to leave everything behind. And yet, we can send much ahead if we act wisely. 
And our response to this counsel serves to test the loyalty of our heart before God. It's more than just a matter of knowledge that we need to consider how to relate to the future. It's also really, at, at its essence, a test of our own relationship with God. This is the thing about material wealth that's really wonderful for us. It is a test. It is a way to discern where I stand with the Lord and what is the orientation of my life. Spending our earthly wealth as if there is no eternal future is a sign of infidelity to God, the Scriptures teach. But sending material wealth on ahead into eternity evidences fidelity to God. Partnership with Him in the work that He's doing here. A fidelity that requires shrewd money management as the followers of jesus christ with this eternal future and with the right orientation to it we will think very differently about financial resources and this brings us to luke chapter 16 today luke chapter 16 if you'll make your way there we find jesus offering first of all a parable on shrewd money management. He gets us into the concept with this parable. He's teaching, uh, and we find here in this section of Luke, a series of teachings, and we note here in verse 1 that he also said to the disciples, that is, he's teaching his followers, that there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough, and we should read here the literal text, I'm not able to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, or this is what I'll do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Let's stop at that point, which is where I believe the parable ends. It's a difficult parable to interpret because it's difficult to quite understand what the man is doing and where he is to be commended. But I do believe that the parable ends here and at the middle of verse 8 that Jesus now begins to make comments about the parable. But let's consider the parable at, at some length here. Let's comb over it from verse 1. Again, it's written to the disciples or addressed to the disciples. That is to Jesus' followers. Jesus' enemies are listening in, we will find out. But he's really talking here to those who are his disciples. Now this manager, it's pretty straightforward, is assigned the responsibility and granted the authority to oversee his master's wealth. His task is to increase his master's holdings. But he fails his stewardship and what he actually does is he squanders his master's wealth. And so, in time, the master confronts him and calls him into the corner office, so to speak. Verse 2, 
and says, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You are no longer manager. That is, in our terms, clean out your desk, turn over all your files, you are fired. In a moment of time, the manager's world crashes down upon him. Now in that day, you did not just go to another firm and apply for a job. This man's career is finished. His reputation is shot. It is going to be very difficult days ahead for this man. No one will hire him. His options are extremely limited as he works through them. In verse 3, we see his, his mind turning over. What are my possibilities? As I mentioned there, when uh, he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, it's, it's literally, I'm not able to dig, which sometimes means you're not strong enough. Here, probably in parallel, more the idea, that's below me. I can't do that. I can't be a person who just digs in the earth. I'm a manager of wealth. That's my job. I can't do this. I'm begging I'm ashamed to do that. That's below me as well. This is not an option for me. So verse 4, notice that he says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Notice the word when. He's acting today so that something will take place in the future. There's a future day coming. I'm going to act today in light of that future. I'll do something now that will assure a response from people, a favorable response to me in the future. And so, verse 5, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asks them how much they owe. He knows how much they owe, I would assume, unless he's really a bad manager, but he probably knows what they owe. It's, it's meant to lead them into what he's going to say next. What do you owe? Let's remember your debt. How great is your debt? Explain this to me. And then he brings this news to them. I'm going to ask you to write a bill at half of what you owe. Now, as we look at these debts, they are sizable. The annual yield of approximately 150 acres of oil is the equivalent. The annual yield of approximately 100 acres of wheat. So he's not dealing here with loans to day workers or subsistence farmers. He's dealing here with a wealthy man's riches in business with other very wealthy individuals. These are the kinds of people with this kind of debt that have many workers and have means to take care of this manager someday down the road. But the key is that he is using resources temporarily under his control to secure benefits for his future. He's using money to elicit a future response from these debtors that will prosper him personally. Now it's widely debated as to what the guy's actually doing. How can you take somebody that owes this much and just ask for half? Uh, What is he actually accomplishing here? Is he sacrificing his own commission as manager of these loans? I think that is probable because of the owner's, the master's response, but we're not sure. That's probably the case. He might be refusing to collect interest that was in violation of the mosaic law and so he puts his master kind of in a place 
or he can't really say anything, or he'll be admitting that he has charged exorbitant interest to these individuals. It, it doesn't make a lot of difference exactly what he's doing. He's using his position in the moment to secure the future. All we know is that by his shrewd action, he converts his master's debtors into his debtors. They now owe him. They now will receive him. He's not falsifying accounts or doing something evil. I don't think that's the idea because, as verse 8 says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. While we don't know exactly what he's doing, his master praises his actions. And since his master confronts him, in verse 2, and fires him, in verse 2, it seems difficult here to draw the conclusion that the master is commending some evil in other words this man just made me a lot less money and i'm going to commend him the, ma the master doesn't seem to operate that way so whatever he's done done he's not swindling his master out of substantial gain from his debtors the point is that the manager's plan is shrewd it is wise to leverage temporary resources so as to secure future resources. He's using his noggin, as they say. He's thinking clearly about how to respond in this situation. And that's what the owner commends. Purchasing a wise reception from people who will receive him after he loses his stewardship is acting shrewdly and wisely. Now, as I said, I take the parable to end there. There's some debate on that, but I think what we find now is Jesus' comments at the middle of verse 8. Notice how Jesus responds to this story, this parable. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That doesn't seem to work for me, at least, as, as words in the mouth of the master. But rather, these are the words in the mouth of our master as he teaches. And what is he saying here in verse 8, second half? The sons of the world, the lost, those who do not know God, the sons of light, the people of God, unbelievers live only for this world, for the here and now. They are thus shrewder in handling material possessions for personal benefit. They, they live this way. Any material possession is meant for my benefit. That's how the world lives. And so they develop a shrewdness, an ability to use money to benefit themselves. The sons of light, the people of God, don't do quite so well with that. Believers are trained to hold material wealth loosely, to have interests that divert our attention away from shrewd money matters and decisions at times. But as unbelievers shrewdly use material possessions for personal gain, believers should learn to do the same thing, but with a higher agenda. That, I think, is what Jesus is striking at here. This man was smart. He acted in the moment to benefit the future with the material resources in his hands. You should learn to do the same thing, not as children of the world, but as children of light. A higher agenda, but the same type of shrewdness. 
Verse 9, and I tell you then, here's what he's saying, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So this manager used money to make friends who would later receive him. Believers should use unrighteous wealth. That doesn't mean dirty money, money that we've gotten uh, illegitimately, but rather earthy possessions. Unrighteous, that's the idea of unrighteousness in this context. Use unrighteous wealth to gain in the future. Jesus is not commending the manager's evil. As Manson reminds us, there is a world of difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. Jesus is not commending and the Master is not commending the man's dishonesty. He's a bad steward. But he's commending this bad steward's shrewdness, cleverness. And he's tying it directly to us. Do you see that in verse 9? Look up ahead to verse 4, where, he's, where the aim of this man is that people may receive me. And then down in verse 9, at the end of the verse, so that when it fails, they may receive you. Same word, tying the two directly together. The people of God should learn to use their money to make friends who will receive them into eternal dwellings. So what's Jesus saying? It's a bit complicated, but as we work it out, it seems to make pretty clear sense. He says, do you see this guy? Do you see what he did? Do you see how he acted shrewdly? He served his own interests by using money to gain future benefits in the world. Listen, I want you to do the same thing, but as children of light. That is, I encourage you to use material wealth to make friends who will receive you into eternal dwellings. Not into houses down here, but into dwelling places in eternity now i can't make this up you can't make this up we have to think through this as jesus teaches us but there's a promise here there's a way of thinking about eternity that jesus lays out for us here and says you should be using wealth for future dwelling places and for friends in eternity You are not going to take anything with you when you die. Soon you will depart this world, never to return to your possessions again down here. So send resources ahead so that when you arrive, you will meet friends, your money influence for eternity. If we grasp what Jesus is saying, it will radically reorient the way that we value and use our wealth. This is a window into reality that the world does not see. They're blind to this kind of concept. We will realize wealth is given to us by God to enjoy here. We read of that earlier this morning. We will spend it on material pleasures that honor Him as the great giver of material wealth here. We will supply our needs and we will use our wealth to give to others. But we will also 
preserve our wealth by investing it for eternity. So what does it mean that friends will receive us? That we will be welcomed by friends in eternity as we use money this way? I think it speaks by way of direct application to giving that supports the life of the church Jesus is saving. As we participate in the people that he is bringing to himself, drawing into his body now on this side of the cross, we are investing in friends that are eternal. Giving that supports the teaching and preaching of God's word so as to sanctify believers and regenerate the lost. As we participate financially in that work, there will be people who hear the gospel message and enter into eternity in God's presence because of what we've given. Now, our part in that may be very small. It may be a matter of pennies that are spread out among many others and others who go and proclaim that gospel. There are, I think it was a, uh, I, I won't give the number, but a number of pastors uh, this past week, just recently, that were being instructed in Cambodia by Jeremy Farmer, who we have supported to go and learn the Khmer language, and we should be jumping up and down as a church. He taught in Khmer, teaching a number, a good group of pastors who are then taking the message that is being taught and going out into their communities and teaching their churches and pointing people to Christ. What part do we have in that? It might be minuscule when it comes to the financial support that we give to the farmers and that we see someday come to fruit in the salvation of souls. But it's something. There's an investment there. And in Cambodia, right now, Eden Baptist Church is making eternal friends. We're pooling our resources together to see people come to Christ as Savior. And someday, we may meet them in heaven. As far as we know, we will. Where we invest in evangelism and outreach and missionaries and mission projects, we are putting our resources into play in what Christ is doing, and there will be an eternal accounting for this. Training of leaders for the cause of Christ. All of these means, I list just a few, but these significant means are ways in which we can make friends now with material resources that will meet us in eternity. And Jesus is instructing us to think that way. Can you imagine meeting someone in heaven, having that person greet you, finding out where they're from, putting things together and then rejoicing that you invested material resources that eventuated in their salvation. I don't know what it looks like. I, there is mystery here that we'll discover, but it seems like Jesus is saying they might just invite you into their dwelling place, and you'll sit down and talk some afternoon about how God used you and moved through each of your lives to bring you to this place of fellowship. Can you imagine what that'll be like? I illustrated this recently. I received an email from a young woman that uh, we know as a church and love. 
she contracted pneumonia. Uh, doesn't live here any longer. But she contracted pneumonia and she said, I took your second book and it was perfect. The Spiritual Reflections book. And I, it was perfect because I could only read one essay at a time. I was that weak. Then there were days when I could read three or four and I continued to read through the book and it was a tremendous blessing to me. Now, there's, as I think of that book, there's probably more source of depression than anything else as I think about it. But I had no idea, no idea that that was happening. That someone was reading the work that I put in, the hours that go into trying to write things and explain things, and that somebody was benefited. That was a source of joy that I can't hardly explain. I think that illustrates in some way what Jesus is telling us to anticipate in heaven. You're going to go to heaven and you are going to relate to people you had no idea how you affected them. But the sacrifice that you made financially led to their blessing and you're going to make that connection there. And there's going to be a response of thanksgiving on their part to you as you have made such friends and certainly the other way around as others have so invested that we may be blessed and benefited. We don't know exactly how that all works out, but Jesus tells us the connections will be made. In eternity we will be welcomed by those our lives have touched in numerous ways, but narrowly here with finances. We could, we could draw this same principle on a number of other levels, but here it's dealing with money. So Jesus continues by instructing us to understand that how we use material wealth in this life is a test of our fitness to manage more responsibility in the kingdom. So it's not only that we're going to meet friends there, but there's something else going on, and that's how we put money into play, put material resources into play for the advance of Christ's kingdom here is a test for what will happen there. It's his words. We would never know this, but he says, verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Pretty straightforward. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the earthy wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? The way we use our earthly, temporal wealth in this life demonstrates our trustworthiness to shoulder responsibilities in heaven. Now, I love opportunities to say this time out. Let's think about heaven for a minute. Remember this popular idea that we fly around or float around on clouds in white robes with a crown and play a harp. I mean, kill it. That would be the most boring eternity you could possibly imagine. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is going to look a lot more like this world than we probably expect. We will live in a renewed earth. We will work, we will plan, we will manage, we will live life. And so many of the things where we find enjoyment down here, we're going to find greater joy in those very things in eternity. So don't think about this ethereal place where nothing really happens, everybody just has a, you know, like a lobotomy with, with wings. 
it, it, it's, it's a working situation. It's a time of great joy, certainly, because sin is removed. But we're going to subdue and exercise dominion over a renewed earth. And we will find no greater joy there than shouldering responsibilities for Christ. If we fail to invest our earthly wealth in endeavors that will last for eternity, how can we expect to be entrusted with greater responsibility when we reach glory? And here's a joyful thought as well. There might be a sense in which the responsibilities that we have here are very limited, but our, our use of financial resources is an opportunity for us to demonstrate faithfulness and loyalty to the Lord. It's an opportunity we all have. Stay tuned for November 3rd. He says it again, it reiterates, verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? What is another's? That's the wealth God entrusts to you for management on earth. Temporal wealth you will leave behind. That which is your own is your eternal reward in heaven, which can never be lost. In context, context there's really no other answer to what he means. So he's saying, if you live out your days on this earth spending more than you make, consuming more than you earn, do you imagine God will assign you great wealth to manage in his kingdom? If you live out your life with no real idea how much money you have, you have no idea what percentage of your wealth you give to the Lord's work, do you imagine you will be commended as a trustworthy steward in the kingdom? If you live your life ignoring the cause of Christ's body and the needs of others, if you hoard all that you can for self-consumption, do you imagine God will welcome you as a steward worthy of great responsibility in His kingdom? There is a connection between this life and the next. A direct connection. Now there can be extenuating circumstances. God understands that. Again, stay tuned for November 3rd. There can be those who cannot invest financial resources or material wealth in eternity because there is none that's given to them to so invest. God knows that. He will settle all things rightly. But for the majority of people, there is a capacity for us to demonstrate fitness for responsibilities in the kingdom of God in eternity by the way that we live here. Our heart is being exposed. All things being equal then, our use of money reveals our functional God. As Paul Perdue led us last week, to stress in that sermon, as we hear it again from Jesus, verse 13 here, a, a repeated theme in his teaching. Verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. How does that fit in here? It fits in beautifully. Investing in eternity, investing in the cause of Christ, there's great motivation for that, making friends, demonstrating fitness for the cause of Christ, but at the end, it reveals our heart. It reveals where our priorities are, like virtually nothing else can. And so it is always a great opportunity 
crucial evidence that you love God is that you invest in Christ's cause as a way of life. Not as a momentary reaction to a certain situation, but as a way of life. God lovers hurt their retirement accounts to invest in eternity. They compromise their insurance coverage to invest in eternity. They choose a lower standard of living in numerous areas in order to invest in eternity, which is actually a higher standard of living. They deny certain dreams. They think more innovatively. They work harder to add income that they may invest in the work of Christ. You cannot serve two masters. You can possess money and love God, but you cannot love them both. Now what Jesus is teaching us here may prove uncomfortable. It stretches us. It slashes with a knife at the idol of materialism that wraps its tentacles around our heart. So those who love money bristle at this kind of teaching. This is rough stuff. And so we read in verse 14, the Pharisees, as we see Jesus answering his opponents, that there are opponents. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Literally, they turned up their noses at him or sneered at him. Why? The same reason some of you may not like what you've heard today. Inside, if the truth were known, your nose is turned up and you're sneering and ridiculing and saying, this is ridiculous stuff. Investing money in heaven, that's just a gimmick for a church to tease money out of people. That's all that is. Eternal friends, that's just sentimental manipulation as a church trolls for donors. That's what that's about. Why do people object in such ways? It's not because Jesus' counsel is false and manipulative. I mean, that charge can be made. It's not the church, it's not the preacher, it's the teachings of Jesus. But that's not what's really going on. I think people so object to such teaching because they love money. And so this is a good place to be if that objection is riding in your soul right now. There's a God there with a small G that needs to be shattered. When you love money, Jesus' take on money irritates you. You don't like it. And they bristle. They were lovers of money, and so they turned up their nose at what He said. They sneered at Him. They ridiculed Him. They wanted nothing to do with this conversation and this teaching. Now these are religious leaders. These are the people, this is like I always say, the Pharisee is a guy you want to be your neighbor. They're really good people in society. They're very religious people, very devout. But they love money. And when you love money, you want to spend it all here. Talk of investing it in some higher cause, in some eternal place, that bugs you. You bristle. Because Jesus has touched an idol, they bristle. They ridicule him. And, verse 15, he then responds to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Wow. (laughs) 
you can defend yourself before others all day long, but God knows what's really going on in your heart. You love money. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They love money. They justified their idolatry to others. But God, who knows the heart, found their love of money and resistance to the idea of investing in eternity and abomination. Always lurking about and attacking our hearts when Jesus talks about money is the temptation of materialism. It's always there. Try this on. I, I think it works. It works for me. I hope it will work for you. But there was a military leader some time ago who worked at the Pentagon. He's a man that drew a lot of fire, a lot of difficulties in his life as people attacked his positions and his um, history and, and all of these things. And one thing that his enemies began to notice was that he had a beautiful secretary. I mean, anybody walked in there knew this woman could work at the Pentagon or she could work for some modeling agency. She was a very attractive secretary. And so the attack came that this man had to be having an affair with this woman, which simply revealed the heart of those that were attacking him. As if you see a beautiful woman, the only thing you can possibly do is to have some bad intention with her. This man was married, and so this became a big issue. The thing is, there was absolutely no truth in it at all. And pretty soon all the critics went scurrying away into the dark corners because there was absolutely nothing to it. This man was loyal to his wife and he made a decision to be loyal to his wife and he loved his wife and he loved his relationship with her and he had no sexual interest in this woman. A natural interest like many would perhaps, but he was able to handle that and to be completely above board with her. Now he knew she was attractive. Anybody who had eyes could see that she was a beautiful woman, but his heart, loyal to his wife, and when duty called, and their careers took a different direction, he parted ways with that secretary the same way he would have parted with a secretary that was very unattractive. No difference. I think there is there, at least for me, a helpful illustration of how we relate to money. Money is attractive. And you've got to be really dense to think anybody's believing you if you say it's not. Money is attractive. It has an allure. There's a beauty that is there that can call us to cross a line of infidelity. It is not wrong to admit how attractive money is. But what we must not do, Jesus teaches, is set our hearts on it. You cannot love your secretary and your wife. You cannot love God and money. You can use money. You can rightly relate to it. You can admit its beauty and its worth and its use, but you cannot love it. You must draw a line there. What you need to do is properly relate to it. And, as with the secretary and this military leader, when the time to part comes, it's not difficult. You let it go. Because you don't love it. 
appreciate it, use it properly, but you don't set your heart on it. These critics were in an idolatrous affair with money. And so anytime anybody talked to them about investing in eternity, they bristled. They didn't want to hear this because they lived for money. Like the traveler from Crete to Spain, then, we must realize that we cannot take anything with us into eternity, but we can send our wealth on ahead. Let that filter down through your soul. Jesus teaches us this. The shipwreck of death will strip us of everything we own. But if we have come to trust in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, not in our own merits, but in His, we have come to know that He has given us by His grace eternal life. We have the confidence that we will reach heaven's shores by God's grace. And once there, all that we have invested in Christ's cause will meet us when we arrive and have a direct bearing upon our continuing service to the Lord. Now, this strikes people differently, and it's going to strike all of us probably somewhat differently. For me, this is hard spiritual work. My heart's under conviction. I have to deal with the love of money. I have to think about it. I have to make sure I draw that line to this attractive source of living. And I have to think carefully about my response. There may be some here, you just say, this is hopeless. My life's in such a financial mess, there's no way that I can invest anything and give anything to anybody. I say to you, hope in God, pray. He knows your heart. This may not be a today thing, this may be a thing of a lifetime. That you continue to work out to rethink your orientation to resources material resources and pray and seek counsel and help and come back on november 3rd by god's grace we're going to talk about those who can only give a little and how do we relate to it keep tracking it's not going to help to run away from jesus teaching keep tracking with it what is that teaching let me review it in three sentences or short paragraphs number one Shrewdly invest material wealth in eternity, making friends there by giving away money here in support of Christ's kingdom. Secondly, manage material wealth with the understanding that your stewardship is preparation for greater responsibility in God's eternal kingdom. And thirdly, recognize the idolatrous allure of material wealth and choose to use it in such a way as to demonstrate that God, not money, is the Lord of your life and the love of your heart. Okay, that was three sentences. They were just long. That's the essence of what he's saying. And may God in his mercy help us to guard our hearts and pour out His grace upon May He pour out His grace upon us as we seek to align our lives with truths that money lovers ridicule and despise, but truths that God lovers embrace in joyful partnership together with full anticipation of the future implications. 
May God pour out his grace upon this church to see that end. And may he so pour it out upon your life and mine that we're changed. Changed in our relationship to God in part by how we relate to our material wealth. Let's bow for prayer and ask the Lord's help to this end. We need you, Father. We need to change. My heart needs to change. There's an allure that money brings, but I pray that that allure would be sanctified and would be turned into an allure, into the allure of heaven and the eternity that we can secure there. Help us to pour out our resources to advance your cause, to accomplish your will. And I pray that you'd help us to deal with the idolatry that eats away at all of us, to eliminate it, and to be faithful in this area, demonstrating our fidelity to you. For those that do not know Christ as Savior, what could they do but ridicule and bristle? But I pray that you'll do a work of the Spirit in their heart and bring them to see the wonder of eternal promises in Christ. I pray that you'd help them to see that what they love is fleeting and dying. They're going to go down in the shipwreck of death and they're not going to bring anything with them. And on that day, those who do not know Christ the Savior will stand naked before you. We can't earn our salvation, but I pray that you would, having robed us in the righteousness of Christ, allow us to pass through death into eternal reward with responsibility and friends awaiting us because we invested the life that you've given us here in this temporal world in eternal values. Help us to so order our lives. Not only in the area of money, but in the area of influence and witness and using our gifts. Help us to invest in this great cause for eternity. Aid us to this end. You've got our attention here today. And I pray that by gaining our attention by your spirit, we may change. Aid us to this end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in submission, Have Thine Own Way.